Luke chapter 1 is where we turn this morning. Luke chapter 1 is a text that we've looked at, I think it's been several years ago now. We studied through the Gospel of Luke as a church, and I don't remember how long it took, but it was a good experience and good exposure to the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 1 records, of course, a portion of that nativity story, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, as it's foretold, first, of course, with the the arrival of John the Baptist, and then the message that the angel Gabriel brought to Mary. I'd like to read this passage. I know it's familiar to many of you, but I'd like to read a portion of this passage. And instead of having the text on the screen, I want to have a, a little meditation for you. This is a grammatic, grammatic, graphical representation of what it might have been for Mary, just a young Jewish girl up in the northern part of the country, Nazareth, uh, to receive an angelic visit. What was that like uh, in her, whether it's in her, in her um, house or some people think it was as she's going to get water or whatever the, whatever the situation is. I don't know that y'all have spoken to angels or having anything like that, but that was a tremendous thing. One of the aspects of Mary and Joseph is that they were just young and yet so godly, so fearing the Lord, so wanting to please him, so much devoted to him. I mean, this, this whole announcement that was going to come was life-changing for Joseph and Mary. And you could read Matthew's account. Uh, it, um, Joseph was thinking that he's needed to send her away. But they submitted to the heavenly vision, just as Paul did, the Apostle Paul. And he, these young people were just so enamored with God's work and so thankful that they could be part of it. So consider, as I read verses, uh, I guess, 26, starting at verse 26 of Luke chapter 1, and uh, you can picture that story or picture that event here in Nazareth. Verse 26 says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and was pondering, pondering what kind of greeting was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He'll be great and be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and there will be no with him. But Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the holy child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, who has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So this angelic visit was, again, a life-changing event for Mary and truly for every person ever born, Adam to the last person born in this age. And this very intimate scene, this very uh, um, private conversation that this angel had with, with Mary, who he says in verse 28, she's a favored one. She is one who has, been, has found uh, much favor with God, verse 30 says. What was it about Mary? Uh, was it her family background? Was it... It was her faith. It was her submissive, submissive obedience to whatever the Lord had in mind. And God, in his graciousness, looked upon her and said, This is the one that is going to be my agent of 
bringing this holy child into the world through this woman, as God had foretold through uh, to, uh, in Genesis chapter 3 that we'll look at here in just a little bit. We see other people throughout Scripture who have found favor with God. Noah found favor uh, or found grace in the God's sight. We see David had found favor. Uh, we see a, a Scripture that teaches us what kind of person is that per- that person that finds favor in God's sight, this man Noah or David or Mary here? Isaiah 66 and verse 2 teaches us, what is, what is God looking for? Well, to this one I will look, Yahweh says, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. This describes Mary. This describes David and Noah and these others. Those who look upon themselves and realize, whoa, I'm a mess. I need, I need something. I don't even know what I need, but I, it's not, I don't have it in myself. And so there's a humility. There's a, 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 a yearning for something more than we are. There is a, a sense of affliction. There's a sense of poverty or need. I don't have it. I don't, I know any, I don't know anybody else who has what I'm looking for. I am empty. I'm looking for Christ or looking for God, looking for something outside of myself. And so to him who is humble, who admits the person's need, the one who then is contrite and recognizing, if I don't have that, I'm undone. There's no hope for me. And so there's a contrition. There is a uh, even a sense of brokenness over this this whole thing, which if we were had time, we could read Mary's Magnificat, her, her celebration later in chapter one of Luke, recognizing I exalt in God my Savior. I have this answer. God has provided this. So the one who is humble, the one who is contrite of spirit, who is broken or crippled in spirit, and who trembles then uh, at God's word, both in the sense of fear, because this is God speaking, but also this is life. And I always think of the picture in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress when Pilgrim flees the city of destruction, and he says one thing, life life, eternal life. He's going after the message of the gospel. He doesn't know where he's going yet, but he's, he's chasing after that because he recognizes this. I, I'm in a city of destruction. There's going to be sin uh, is going to be judged by a righteous God. And so this person is the, the person to whom God looks. This person is Mary who has found favor. Well, in these verses, we see three specific names or titles that are attributed to Jesus or given to Jesus, and one that's stated in a little different, different way, and we'll look at we as we focus. There's so much going on in this text, we won't have time to evaluate all of it, but if we were to look specifically at verse 31, where the angel describes the gift that God has given to Mary, and of course, what time of year did this happen, and when was Jesus born? I don't know. I don't know. Okay, answer that question. There you go. Uh, but he says, Do not be afraid. You have found favor. Behold, verse 31, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. So here we have the first of that those names that are spoken here of Jesus' titles or names or, or how he is to be referred uh, in Scripture, even from the beginning to the end. He says, behold, you will conceive. And that, that's something, I mean, Mary's engaged, right? You know the rest of the story. Mary's engaged to this guy, Joseph, but they, they're, they're betrothed. And, and even verse 27 said that, but they haven't come together as husband and wife, and they're not anyway near that. And, and usually, I mean, this is in the, all the songs, all the poems say, first comes love, then comes marriage, and then comes the baby in the baby carriage, right? So that's not scriptural, but it is 
practical and it is godly. Uh, and so she says, I know I'm betrothed, but I'm not, we're not married yet. And so uh, the angel saying, you will conceive in your womb. And she says, well, I know that's going to happen in the future, but now? You want this to happen now? And it's not something that she had to act on. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And so this whole reality comes to her mind. Wait a minute. There's going to be a baby in my womb. It's going to be a son, and I already know his name. I know his name. That's something that the husband ought to have announced, right? You can read about that as Zechariah te- uh, speaks the name of John, John the Baptist, and so forth, later in chapter 1. But this name is already given to the son. It's before an ultrasound, before any kind of uh, um, diagnostic or, or uh, in, introspective, what's the word, investigative research into the womb, no genetic testing. It's the son. It's a boy. Before the conception, before the, everything is going, this is a son. Now, one thing about, if you know genetics and all, a woman, uh, uh, chromosomal speaking, genetically speaking, has two X chromosomes, right? A boy has XY. Well, where's the Y chromosome going to come from just the woman? Because as we read, this isn't Joseph and Mary having a child. This is Mary having a child. Where's this Y chromosome coming to be? What, what is this all about? And so she even asked that question. Verse 34, we'll get to that here, here soon. But she is wondering, uh, she's thinking all these things and, and wondering, what's, how's this going to be? You will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son. You shall name him Jesus. Why a son? Why not a girl? I mean, that girl power and all that kind of stuff that seems to be all the rage now. It can't be a son. It has to be a, excuse me, it can't be a daughter. It can't be a, a girl. It needs to be a son. Because that is what God himself had promised. You remember Isaiah 7, 14, the Lord will give you a sign and this will be a, a child will be given, a son, a child will be born, a son will be given. A son is important. A son of David even, as we see in this context. A son who's going to rule on the throne of his father David. The one who is going to receive all these things is a boy. Does God hate women? No. No, he doesn't hate women, but he uses men in specific ways. He uses women too in specific ways, but in this way, Christ had to be a male, had to be a son born to fulfill God's promises. And you think, well, couldn't God have promised a girl? But he didn't. He didn't. He promised a son, and he promised that he was going to use this boy, and you shall name him, here's the first of our Jesus. Now, Luke doesn't draw that out. Matthew does, if you turn over to Matthew chapter 1. You shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew is writing his gospel, his his, uh, theological narrative of Christ's life in a Jewish context. And so he says, you know, you know, you know, Jesus in, in Hebrew, that name Yeshua means Yahweh saves. And so obviously Jesus will be the one who will save his people from their sins. Luke probably is writing more to a Gentile or at least a non-Jewish audience. And so he doesn't doesn't present that uh, uh, reality. The name itself is enough, and he portrays or or develops the idea. I mean, again, if if you were here in our study of Luke, you know the key verse of Luke. Well, let me remind you, Luke 19 and verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. And so we, salvation is in, in Luke's gospel, but he doesn't bring up that idea here. You shall name him Jesus. Now, he has names, he has lots of titles, but this is really his name. His name is Yeshua. His name is Jesus in the Greek, of course. Uh, Jesus, 
in the in the Greek, but Jesus in our kind of anglicized Greekish whatever, and that is his name. But we see lots of titles. We see titles like the uh, Son of the Dawn or the uh, Son of the Living God, or we see the Bread, we the Light of the of the World. We see lots of different titles or terms that. It, but this is his name. Jesus is his name, and he has another name that nobody knows yet. And we'll see that in Revelation 19. But this name Jesus is given to him to indicate. He's a boy. He's going to grow to, a, to be a man. He's going to save his people. Now, he goes into this whole thing, verse 32, which really brings into this idea of the messianic expectation of the age. What people were expecting Messiah to come. By the way, we don't see that term, do we? Messiah, Christ, in this, in this context. We see other terms and titles. But Messiah or Christ, Messiah in the Hebrew, Christ in the, in the Greek, means the anointed one, the one who's going to come in the power of God himself and rule and reign. Gabriel announces that here in verse 32, that messianic expectation of this conquering king, Messiah, he will be great and be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever and there will be no end of his kingdom. He says he will be great. Now, there are many people who like to be called great. We think of Alexander the Great. We see Peter the Great. We see any number of other politicians throughout the ages. But this is Jesus bar none, no competitors, no near uh, um, you know, challengers to the title of throne. Even John the Baptist was spoken about back in verse, uh, where is it? Back in verse 15, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Now, John the Baptist is going to be great in the sight of the Lord. It's kind of a qualified greatness. Uh, he was great. He was the greatest, as Jesus said, uh, in all the kingdom. And yet the one who's in the prior, anyway, how he said it, the least of the ones who are in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. So there's a special position given to John, and yet there is no qualification about Jesus. He will be great, bar none, end of story. He will be exalted. He will have the magnificence. He will have the, the authority, the prestige, the honor, the glory. In fact, whereas I mean, lots of people bowed down before Genghis Khan and, and other political military leaders throughout history. Every knee will bow in heaven, earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess what? Genghis Khan, president, whatever. No, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is and will be great. He is the one who has undiminished uh, Greatness, unqualified greatness, he will be and shares, which, which he always says, I don't share my glory with anyone. And yet, Jesus is glorious. And even as he says in John 17, glorify me with the glory I had before the world was. Well, God the Father doesn't share his glory with anybody other than himself within the triune Godhead. And so for Jesus to say, give me that glory, if we ask that, God would say, why aren't you dead yet? You're, 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 you're gone. That you would claim something that is not yours to have. And yet Christ said, no, I, I deserve this. I have this identity as God himself. I am great. It's not pride and arrogance to say it if you are indeed God. So he will be great. And here's our second title here. He will be called the Son of the Most High. Son of the Most High. We see this Phrase most high also repeated in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the most high will overshadow you. Most high is a, is a big, um, often used title for God. It describes not the, the 
almost high or the medium high or the, the near high or whatever. No, the most high, the one who's on top of everything. We see this phrase or this title first used in Genesis chapter 14. You can look there as Abraham has come back after defeating the Gentile kings and rescued Lot and all the things. And he stops at Jerusalem and he worships God most high through Melchizedek, the, the priest who's serving there. And uh, both the Priest Melchizedek is described as a priest of the Most High God, and then Abraham is described as one who serves Yahweh, the Most High God. It really references the sovereignty, the majesty, the exceptionality, the, the highestness that God has. In other words, he is the sovereign, supreme ruler. He is the one who is overall, there's no competitors, no challengers to that throne. It is something that, that uh, was not ever contested. It was not, never, was never a real kind of threat, but there is the angel, cherubim, cherub, that uh, challenged or desired this glory, this, this uh, same majesty, the most highness of God. And he says in Isaiah 14, I, this is Lucifer talking, I will ascend to heaven. I'll raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. That's not going to end out well for Lucifer, who desired that ascendancy, that first place among everything. No. No, it's not going to work out very well. Even Nebuchadnezzar, who kind of followed after that political, military kind of animation, who we read about in Daniel chapter 4, how he had to be taught and even brought low like a beast for a period of time, uh, and re had to recognize that it is the Most High God. I'm just reading from Daniel 4. The Most High God has done these things. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. He is the most powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind, and he gives it, the rule, to whomever he wishes and sets up, sets up over it the lowliest of men. Daniel 4 speaks about that. And so we see God Most High recognized as the sovereign. And here, verse 32, again, Luke 1, this is called, Jesus is called the Son of the Most High, which indicates there's some connection that, that really nobody else has. Now, if you read other places in Scripture, there are other places where even we can be called sons of the Most High. Uh, that's, that's a little bit different category of, of talk that, than what the angel is saying here. This is the undisputed, nobody like him, the, the uh, only begotten, as you know that verse from, or that phrase from John 3.16, the only begotten son, or uh, only begotten son. Jesus is special. Now, we can all be called children of God, but Jesus is, is different and special. He is the son of the most high. He is the one who has absolute uniqueness. He is the one that, that there's nobody else can share his, his um, attention, his, his identity before God. He is the one who is just like the Lord in this regard. It says in verse 32, he's going to be great, be called the Son of the Most High, this, this one who is, is over all, who is given the throne of his father David, uh, the Lord God, the Lord Yahweh, the Lord God, will give him the throne of his father David. Now, does Jesus have to go out and battle for it? Does he have to go and, and make political connections? That's one of the reasons, by the way, why did Solomon have all those wives, hundreds and hundreds of wives? Part of it was because, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the parts is political alliances. He was making peace with this country, this kingdom. Hey, I'll, you know, I'll give you peace if you give me one of your daughters, and, or vice versa. I'll, you know, give me one of my daughters if you make a treaty with us and trade. And, all. and so there was just all that going on. Jesus doesn't have to do anything like that. 
he is the one who is established. He, he need, he's been promised this from before the foundation of the world. And so he says, I, the Lord God, will give him, Jesus, the throne of his father, David. The throne. And you think, what's Jesus going to do with a big chair? It's not really talking about the chair. We Now, many places in Scripture, going back to the time of the kings and so forth, you can read about uh, so-and-so sat in the throne of his father and all this kind of thing. And that's talking about a literal, you know, sit down in the chair. But a lot of times we see the throne just representing symbolically the rule, the authority, the sovereignty of that particular king. And that's what he's talking about here. Do we have, can we go, do we have, have ever, in all of our archaeological excavations, have we found the throne of David or the throne of Solomon, which was pretty grand. You can read about it. It's described in 1 Kings. What, is, what was his stuff like? And Well, it's not the throne. It's not the seat. It's the authority that it represents. Christ has the authority, the sovereignty, the right to rule, granted by God to Jesus' father, David. And you think, oh, Jesus' father, David. Yes, he is a son of David. He is a literal son, not a... Not a uh, contrived or angelic or spiritual being. He is a, a literal son. He becomes uh, enfleshed, uh, veiled in flesh that God had seen. We just sang that song. He is a son of David. So much is talked about here in Luke's gospel in chapter 3, the genealogy of Jesus uh, mentioned there in uh, according to Mary's family heritage. And this is contested kind of thing. But the point is that Jesus is a literal, physical descendant of David through Mary. Now, he's also a descendant of David through Joseph. But Mary's genealogy establishes that Jesus really is born of David through uh, Nathan, the, the son of David. And you can read all about that. Luke 3 has that whole thing. So Mary's genealogy rep represents or affirms or puts forward Jesus has a physical right to rule. The genealogy through Joseph in Matthew's gospel records Jesus has a royal right to rule. Because Nathan, do you ever read about King Nathan? There was never a King Nathan. Sorry for all my friends, Nathan or Nathaniel. But there was King Solomon. That was the brother of Nathan. Solomon was the king. Well, that's what Matthew's genealogy of, of Jesus records, that Jesus is a descendant of Solomon. And so he has the kingly right or the legal right to reign. Well, why didn't, why didn't, God just kind of streamlined the whole thing and bring Jesus as a descendant through Solomon because there was an historical event where this guy, Jeconiah, who was a jerk, Jeconiah, I don't know how you say, Je Jehoiachin, uh, this guy who, who God says, enough with you and all your people, no one of your descendants will be king at all. Well, guess what? Joseph is descended through this guy, Jeconiah, Jehoiakim. And so, but God had said no physical descendant could rule the throne. This is Jeremiah 22 and verse 30. And so how's God going to do this now? Because Jesus, is, Jesus isn't a physical descendant of Joseph, is he? But he does have that inherited or adopted right to rule through Joseph's uh, genealogical line, where he does have the physical right to reign through his mother, through his mother Mary. In other words, Jesus is ruling on the throne of his father David. This throne that God had promised, you can read 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant, that God says, David, you're about ready to die. Of course, 2 Samuel 7 isn't at the end of his life, but God said, I'm going to raise up a son to you, and he's going to rule in your place and rule uh, in, in my, um, over my kingdom, over the house of Jacob, as it says here. 
verse 33, he's going to be the Israeli king. He's going to be the one who is ruling and reigning, and even his kingdom, as it says here, verse 33, there will be no end. He will reign over it forever, and there will be no end of his kingdom. And that was part of God's promise. This is going to be going on forever and ever and ever. No end at all. Why the house of Jacob? Why not over the house of uh, uh, Absalom, or not Absalom, um, Ishmael? Why not God over the, uh, Egypt and over Assyria and all these different other countries? Well, if Christ rules over the house of Jacob, that influence, that authority spreads throughout the earth. Every nation will come and honor this guy, Jesus. Who is this Jesus, Jewish Messiah? But he is the king, son of the most high. Don't mess with him. You better get in line with him now. He will rule over the house of Jacob. It's not just not limited to the house of Jacob, but from initially from that house of Jacob, from the house of Israel, from the Israel Israelite nation. If you were to keep your place in, in Luke and turn back just a little bit to Isaiah chapter 65, there's so many other scriptures we could look at. Uh, in, in the prophets specifically. But Isaiah 65 gives us a little perspective on this, of what is this Jesus going to do, and how is his reign and rule going to come? What's it going to look like? When he comes on earth, we came the first time, we didn't see all this wonderful transformation, Jesus is king and all this kind of stuff. But when he comes the second time, this is what it's going to look like. Isaiah 65 and verse 17 and following, God says, Behold, I am creating a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come upon the heart. But be joyful and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for joy. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be joyful in my people. And there will be no longer, there, there will no long, there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the voice of crying. No longer will, be, will there be an, in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fulfill his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100. And the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. They build houses and inhabit them. They'll plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They'll not build another inhabit. They will not plant another eat. For as the lifetime of trees, so will the days of my people. My chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for terror, for they are seed of those who are blessed by Yahweh and their offspring with them. Notice it says, my holy mountain there, verse 25. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. They'll do no evil nor act corruptly in all my holy mountains, says Yahweh. Hey, this has happened, right? This is going on right now in Jerusalem. It's not going on in Jerusalem. And that never has this scripture been fulfilled in the time ever. But when Christ comes as the king, as the one who is the son of the most high, who is king serving, sitting on the throne of his father David, serving in that regard, this is what it's going to look like. This is what we would refer to as the millennial kingdom or the time when, when God's temporal rule and reign will be very evident from Jerusalem and over and even the peace between lion and and um, or excuse me, wolf and the lamb, the lion will eat straw like the ox and, and so forth. That's something that is totally different to our experience right now. In other words, this is yet future. If you turn back to Luke chapter 1, verse 30, uh, where'd it go? Verse 32, the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. In other words, there is a an aspect in which Jesus is, yes, king of kings and lord of lords right now. He is ruling and reigning over everything. There's, there's no corner, no portion of this whole creation that, that God's, that Jesus, particularly his, his rule and reign are not being experienced. And yet there is a time when that reality, that expression of it, that practice of it will be made more evident in this age. And that is when Christ comes in, in his second coming. 
and this wonderful transformation of the kingdom. Yahweh, my God, will come, as Zechariah 14 goes on to describe. Again, so much in the prophetic works that we could look at. Ezekiel 37, or even the text we look at, looked at last week with Martin, was in Daniel 7, and that talked about the Lord Jesus Christ ruling and reigning, coming upon all, all these people. It says his kingdom will not end. It will have a foreverness aspect to it. And one of the things that we struggle with in our minds is we think forever and um, there'll be no end of his kingdom. We think of that in terms of maybe as a ray, if you know your geom geometric terms. There's a line which goes in infinitely in each direction. There's a line segment which is a, has a specific length or a ray that starts at one point and then goes on infinitely. We think of a lot of times this forever statement as a, as a ray going on infinitely. In both Hebrew and Greek, the phrase has to do with uh, to the ages or to the epic or to that end of time kind of thing, in which cases it's not a ray, it's more of a segment. And we think, well, that doesn't make much sense. How does that, how does that, how can that be? Because we live in time. And we think, well, of course we live in time. Does a fish know it's wet kind of thing? Yes, we live in time. But there is something outside of time, and that is eternity. And we think, well, what's eternity? Well, it's not time. It's different. And well, how can you explain it? I can't explain it. It's just outside of time. And everything is, is present to God. He, he, it's, it's, it boggles our minds because of our finitude, our, our um, just lack of perception on these things. But Christ says his kingdom will have a definite start the second coming, not kingdom, the millennial kingdom, will have a definite start and will last until, as we read in Isaiah 65, God makes a new heavens and new earth. In other words, that kingdom will have no end. It has an end in, in time, but then it goes right into eternity. And it's not like eternity future. I don't like that term, eternity past, eternity future. It's eternity. It's outside of time. It doesn't have a temporal aspect to it. Now, again, that's hard to understand because God promised and how does that, how can God do something in the I don't understand it all. But for God to say he will have, or excuse me, his kingdom will have uh, no end, no termination of his kingdom. 1 Corinthians 15 speaks about the time when Christ will, having, having subjected everything, death and Hades even, brought under subjection to Christ, then Christ himself brings all that together, the kingdom that has been entrusted to him, and returns it to God the Father so that God may be all in all. In other words, there's no end to this thing. Now, there's an end in time because time ends but his kingdom doesn't. It transcends time. Now, you just think, I don't know if you like to play games at all at, at Christmas time or other holidays, but you, I mean, you are in the game and you are just being competitive and you are plotting evil ways against the other competitors and ruin them and win this game. And then it's done and you move on. And, and the victories you had and the, the, the fortunes you amassed, all those sheep and all those gold bars, and all, it's nothing. You can't take that to the bank. But Christ's kingdom... It transcends time. There's, there's nobody else you can say that. We have presidents, we have kings. I mean, even Queen uh, Elizabeth II, longest reigning monarch in the, ever, she died. And the throne was taken, or the, the crown was taken and given to her son. There is no end to Christ's kingdom. He will rule and reign forever and ever. Well, we need to see this third term moving forward. Because Mary had this question. Oh, great, this is going to be wonderful. How is this all happening again? Verse 30, um, 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? This whole thing, I'm a betrothed to, to Joseph. He's a good, God-fearing man, righteous man, Matthew says. And yet there's a certain, I, I'm, I can't get pregnant right now. 
this is how is this going to be? Notice in the contrast between her response to the angel, same angel, Gabriel, versus how Zechariah responded in verse 18. Zechariah, having given the news of a son to be born to him in his old age, how will I know this? Not how will this be, as Mary said, but how will I know this? Remember how we looked at that in 1 Corinthians 1? The Jews, they demand signs. They need proof. They, and this is not a negative. This is We kind of like signs and proofs and so forth, too. But Zechariah had the attitude, prove it to me. I, I've got to have some confirmation on this. And Zech, excuse me, Mary did not ask this. She says, how is this going to happen? I don't understand. Am I supposed to do something? Because if you were to look at some of our illustrious Old Testament kind of people, Abraham, for example, you're going to have a son through Sarah. You have to wait. How long do you have to wait? Well, 30 years. Okay, what? 30 years? And so he took matters into his hands. He married Hagar, the, the handmaiden of Sarah, and, and all the nastiness happened through that. Mary didn't have to do anything, in other words. How is this going to be? What, is there something, is, what's my role? And so verse 35 says, The angel, the Holy Spirit, will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Here is one of those examples of Hebrew parallelism or poetry that's going on. This is an example. In fact, one, one uh, uh, commentator wrote it this way. In the reply of the angel, we notice the parallelism, which among the Hebrews always indicates the expression of sublime sentiments and poetical style. The angel in his reply deals with one of the deepest and holiest mysteries, this incarnation idea. And for this reason, his words are here exalted to a song. In a tender and chaste manner, he declares in the song the fact of the impending pregnancy of the Virgin Mary through divine influence. The Holy Ghost will come upon Mary and overshadow her with his power, through which she will become pregnant. That's what he says. That's what the angel says. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's going to be how the incarnation happens. That's how the conception happens. That's her whole question. How's this going to come to be? And he says, for that reason, the Holy Child, here's the other title or name, uh, the third one, and then the fourth one, of course, the Son of God. The Holy Child should be called the Son of God. We see this, this parallelism, the Holy Spirit, and then in the corresponding line, the power of the Most High. Same idea, Holy Spirit equals the power of the Most High. This is the God who made everything. This is the Holy Spirit who has said will come upon you and will overshadow you. So coming upon usually has the idea of kind of a nasty thing. Um, you remember in Acts 8 when Simon Magus, Simon the Great, another example of somebody who's full of himself, uh, said... I, give me some of that power too so I can do that. And Peter says, may your gold die with you because you, you thought you could purchase the gift of God. And so Simon says, oh, I don't want any of those bad things to come upon me in a negative sense. Here, the Holy Spirit is coming upon in a, I mean, in a positive sense. Could you say that? It's really understating it. In a blessed sense where the Holy Spirit is overshadowing the, uh, the Virgin Mary who is there like a shadow. Remember, I think it's also in Acts 8, when Peter is walking and, and, and uh, even if the shadow of, of, Peter's, uh, of Peter's presence fell upon somebody, they'd be healed. Well, how does that happen? That's pretty cool. That's pretty handy. It's that idea. The Holy Spirit is going to come and overshadow the, the, the virgin, and that's how the conception happens. We see the same idea when God in his, in his glory cloud came down and dwelt, even and covered the tabernacle, 
and it was beautiful. God in his presence was there. We see an example of this. I forget the same word or not, the same concept in Genesis 1 and verse 2. The Holy Spirit is hovering over the face of the waters. What's the Holy Spirit doing there? Creating stuff. What's the Holy Spirit doing here with Mary? Creating stuff, making this baby who is both God and man. In other words, Mary contributed genetic material to this baby child, this holy child, as it's described here. Uh, King James, if you have King James, says this holy thing or that holy thing. The child to be born uh, is holy. In other words, I don't know if you all have ever had children or been around them, but would you describe them as holy? Don't answer that. Because we, we're not. We're not holy. This is the idea. Now, we can be made holy. Sinners can be made holy, and that's through justification, God declaring us righteous by faith, by grace through faith in Christ. But from birth, this holy child, that child to be born is holy, set apart unto God, perfect, sinless, without fault, blemish, any kind of problem. Boy, wouldn't we like some of those kids? God, give me a bunch of those. Um, no, I mean, I like our kids right now, but uh, thankful. Anyway, <clears throat> Christ is different, categorically different to any other person born into this age. He is holy. He is devoted to God from his birth. Even as John the Baptist is described, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even well in the womb. There's something special about these guys, but something even more special about our Lord Jesus Christ, who is holy. He didn't become holy. He wasn't, you know, through trials and difficulties. He was declared that holy thing from the beginning. And I think, if you don't mind, that really indicates Gabriel's perspective on this, or the angelic, or the, the heavenly perspective. Yes, he's, he's Jesus. He's the Savior. Yes, he's the Son of the Most High. Yes, he's the Son of God. But he is holy. He is the holy God. And they couldn't get over that fact. And he's become a man. He's become a child made of dust. I mean, Mary, God likes you, but you're, 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 you're not like us angels. We're strong and we're uh, you know, serving God. And yet salvation comes not just through a woman, but to a woman and to humans who need a salvation. In other words, angels... The fallen angels, there's no hope of salvation for them. They're done. There's no angelic savior. The angels who did not rebel against God are servants of those who will inherit salvation. There's something special about humans. Different to dogs and cats and horses and, and all, the, all the things. We are made in God's image, and he provided a salvation for us. And Christ himself is that holy child. He should be called the Son of God. Now, this, this title, Son of God, can refer to lots of different things. It can refer, for example, to his kingliness, his royalty. His, his Psalm 2 talks about, you're my son, in 2 Samuel 7. Also, you're my son, they have begotten you, and you'll inherit the kingdoms of the earth. and all this. So, Son of God can have a, a reference to kingliness. But here, there's nothing I don't, in any reference to, to kingliness. And we saw that back in verses 32 and 33. Here, the reference to the Son of God is based on his identity. Who is this guy? Who is this Jesus? He is holy, which is totally different than any other experience we've had on a person born into this world. He'll be called the Son of God because he is God himself. He is identified with God. He is God in the flesh. John, in his gospel, doesn't have the nativity story like we have it in Matthew and Luke. Mark doesn't have it at all. But John kind of records it differently, presents it differently. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. 
And then later it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word Christ, we, we kind of get the picture. We kind of put two and two together. Oh, he's talking about Jesus. And then we see that the word demonstrates or manifests or explains who is this God? What's he like? Uh, how, how can we relate to him? How can we have a path to him? And so we see that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the word of God. He is eternal. He is distinct from everything else, right? Remember our little uh, very inexpensive um, flannel graph, I guess. There's God over here. There's everything else. There's God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, and everything else, all the angels, all the demons, all the matter, all the time, everything else over here. God himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is eternal, uh, consubstantial, all these different theological terms, divine, the fullness of Godhead, dwells in bodily form, as it talked about Jesus. Here it says, Jesus himself is, shall be called, the Son of God. He is the one who is the perfect representation. He's the one, as Hebrews 1 describes, who has explained the Father, who has, has uh, put him forward in his... Um, I mean, we have the prophets. Thank God for the prophets. But now we have the last or final word, and that is, uh, in his last days, he's spoken to us through his Son. Through his Son, the Son of God, the one who's identified with him. When we can see a phrase like Jesus says in John 10 and verse 30, I and the Father are one. Now, y'all don't want to go saying that right now. God and me, we're close. I mean, but who are the same as God? And even the, the religious leaders said, I think this is Matthew or John 8, where Jesus is talking about this relationship he has with the Father, and he makes himself equal with God. And they were about ready to kill him because that's blasphemy. If it's not true, it's blasphemy. But what if it's true? That changes everything, doesn't it? These people hated this man, Jesus, these religious leaders, because he exposed their wickedness, their sin, their, their hypocrisy, their arrogance, their lack of faith and obedience to God. And Jesus says, I am the, the, uh, the God himself. And even Philippians 2, wonderful passage, 5 through 11, speaks about this. He, he had the form of God. He did not regard that as something to be held on to, but he emptied himself, taking upon himself the form of man and then humbled himself further to death, even the death on the cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and gave him a name, which is above every other name. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. This is the Son of God. Jesus named, of course, verse 31, and then three different titles uh, spoken of him. Many or more titles we can consider. But this is Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, Son of the Most High. Notice, just to finish the narrative, just a couple points. Verse 36, or verse 30. Yeah, verse 36. The thing that Zechariah demanded... Show me, show me a sign. What's the proof of this? Did Gabriel give Zechariah a sign? He did. Didn't really turn out well for Zechariah. Nine months, he was silent. Now, at the very least, it means he couldn't speak. But it probably also means he couldn't hear. Remember how the, the, the families, they gathered around after John was born, the baby was born, and they, they made signs to him asking, what's you going to call this, this boy? And he wrote it on a tablet. In other words, I don't think he was silent. In other words, the last audible message he had was what Gabriel said um, here in, in chapter 1. In other words, in, in any event, Mary was given a sign, even she didn't ask for it, but Gabriel said, your relative Elizabeth has all conce conceived a son in her old age. This is a sixth month. Notice it says the sixth month. That's how it started, verse 26. It's the sixth month of John's uh, pregnancy or, or the gestation of the time in the womb for John. And this phrase, God took notice of Elizabeth, who was called barren, 
for nothing will be impossible with God. That same phrase, nothing will be impossible with God, is also attributed to Abraham and Sarah. Nothing will be impossible with God. Trust him, God will bring what he wants to bring at his particular time. And so we have that confidence in him. And Mary's response, verse 38, Behold, I think this is okay. I wish you'd ask me first. No. Behold, I'm the bondservant of the Lord. I'm the slave of the Lord. May it be done to me exactly what you said. Whatever it would cost me, whatever it would be a reproach upon me or Joseph or the child, let it be done according to your word. Your word is good and proper. Now, by way of conclusion, this coming kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is not something to be looked upon as, you know, it'll be nice to have a good fellow in the, in the chair uh, for a change. You know, it wouldn't be nice to have a good leader. Um, but then that's the, that's the end of it. You're just concerned about having a good leader. How about, what if this leader comes and his kingdom is unlike anything we've ever experienced on earth? What if he comes and he judges righteously? What if he comes and he has even the foundation of his kingdom, the foundation of his throne is righteousness and justice? And we think, yeah, that's what we need for those nasty ne'er-do-wells out there. They need justice. They need God's righteousness. Okay, how about we start with ourselves? Because if everybody's going to be in that kingdom. Well, everybody will have an opportunity to be in that kingdom. But there is a gate. There is a door. And that door portrayed in various parables and illustrations of our Lord and in the Gospels. You've heard this question, why should I let you into my kingdom? Why should you come into this place of glory and delight and, and, and uh, holiness and righteousness? Why are you think that you have a part in that? And we can say, well, I've been a good person. You know, I've done all these things. I haven't ever done that over there. I have connections. You know, I know this guy. I know this guy. And I've done this. I, you know, how much money I've spent. How many miracles I've done in your name. That didn't work for those in Matthew chapter 7, did it? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. I had no relationship with you. What makes us think that we can just, hey, that kingdom, I want to be part of it. No. Because God judges righteously, he knows who we are. He knows that we are a mess. He knows that, boy, they are, they don't recognize it, but they are so needy. They don't have anything in themselves that can save them. They are lost and ruined. They are abandoned even by God. God in his mercy draws near, but, but they, they will not receive his grace. And so he loves, Psalm 33 and verse 5, says he loves righteousness and justice. Psalm 89 verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. And even this phrase, uh, spoken of in various political factions or uh, experiences in recent time, Amos 5 and verse 24, Let justice roll down like waters and uh, righteousness like an everlasting stream. Justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an everlasting stream. Well, that's all fine and good for those who are just and who are righteous. But what about, well, everybody? It's not like that, which is pretty much everybody, right? How can we have this confirmation, this confidence that, that when Christ comes in his kingdom, that we'll be a part of it, not cast away, not cast apart, uh, cast away from his presence? Well, thankfully, we have a, a statement. 
And we can have a confidence. We can have this very great assurance of our participation in that coming kingdom. Psalm 2 ends with this statement, Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. And you know, if Psalm 2 were to end even with that statement, yes, we should serve God. We serve Yahweh. We serve him with fear, love, obedience, submission. We cling to him because he's our only life. We rejoice with, with trembling. We, we, it's, it's a confidence, but also, whoa, we're dealing with God, the living God. This is not just Jesus, uh, meek, you know, tender little babe, meek and mild and all that kind of stuff. This is the Son of the Most High. This is the Son of God, the Holy Child. And so we come before him and we come with, please don't kill me, kind of a thing. And so we want to kiss the son. We would do homage, I think the King James says. Uh, honor him, lest he become angry. We think, well, why would he become angry? Because you're a sinner. You don't deserve to be in his presence. He's going to kill you if you don't come humbly with contrition and, and clinging to his righteousness. His, his wrath may soon be kindled. We didn't read about this. You can read about it in Revelation 19. When Christ comes with all of his saints behind him, he is going to destroy destroy nation whole nations and the 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 birds will come and feast on the flesh it's horrible what christ is going to do but he's going to do it in righteousness and justice the only reason we have any participation in christ is because we recognize i've got nothing christ is my life he who knew no sin he's a holy child he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become of God in him. He is the one who brought this, this way forward for sinners like you and me to be brought into his kingdom. Well, again, Psalm 2, if it were into this, this way, it is true. Honor the son, kiss him, for his wrath may soon be kindled. But there's another verse, another phrase here. Last verse of, of verse 12. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. How blessed, how happy, how fortunate, how, how saved are all those who find refuge, take refuge, realize he is my life, my life is hidden with Christ in God, and there is no other hope, family, behavior, connections, money, nothing. Find refuge in Christ alone and find his, his uh, wonderful salvation. We worship him, we bow down before him, we obey him, we say, Christ, you're mine, and I'm yours if you'll take me. I know there's not much I can contribute to your kingdom, but... By, would you would you accept me based on your righteousness? Would you forgive my sins? Would you cleanse me from all those things? I don't want to bring those into your kingdom. That would be foolish. Bring sin into the righteousness and, king, and justice of God's kingdom. But we refuse those things. We turn away from those sins. We cling to Christ and find our refuge in him. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Would you at this Christmas season find your refuge in Christ alone? Would you grow in him and find your life to be not just beautified, but, but made full in Christ. In other words, there's no life apart from Christ. There's no, there's no advantage to, to a moral life apart from Christ. Seek Christ. Love him. Honor him. Worship him. Take refuge in him. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for the gift of your Son. We're thankful for the confidence we have in him. We're thankful for the message that we have, a message of reconciliation. We are so grateful that you are a God who saves, not just a God who judges. You'll do that for sure. And yet you are a God who saves. You're so merciful to those who would be humble and contrite and they would tremble at your word to respond in faith and humility, turning away from sin, unrighteousness, immorality, uncleanness, foolishness really, but it's treachery against the holy God. Please, would you save? 
all those who are here this morning and help us to grow in Christ. We look to you for all things, and we pray, of course, that Christ would come in his glory and that every knee would bow and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We pray in his name. Amen.